everybody, welcome to episode 107 of Literary Disco, Three Day Road. Today we discuss a famous work of Canadian fiction, the novel Three Day Road by Joseph Boyden. It's the story of two heroic World War I fighters of indigenous ancestry. The novel was a huge success when it was published in 2005, winning a slew of awards and becoming perhaps the most famous Canadian novel about Indian or First Nation characters. We'll discuss the book itself and then talk about the recent controversy surrounding its author, Joseph Boyden, whose Aboriginal heritage has come under scrutiny lately. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey, guys. Hi. Hello there, Mr. Strong. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I, uh, how, did you, how did you find the most famous book from Canada that no one's ever heard of? <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things that once you start going down, like once you actually Google this book or find out about it, of course, it is hugely successful. I mean, like all things Canadian, right? Like there's all these great right. Canadian works of art and great Canadian thinkers, and we just never hear about them because we're so self-absorbed in the United States. Um, no, I actually was in Calgary. I uh, was doing a, a convention up there, you know, signing autographs, and um, I met a woman who is a high school teacher in Canada, and we, you know, she teaches literature, and we were, you know, just started talking about books, and I asked her what books uh, she likes to give her students, and this one came up, and... Hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been a fan of Indian literature. I've never read any Canadian Indian literature, but Ameri- um, North American Indian literature uh, was something I, I spent a lot of time in. The traditional stories, I uh, studied a lot in college, and then um, contemporary literature, too. I just love, like, Louise Erdrich and um, Leslie Marmon Silco and uh, Sherman Alexie, of course. So when she mentioned this book, I was like, I've never heard of this. And she was like, this is, um, for her, she said it's, probably the best book to give high school students, um, especially the boys, um, because it's about war. It's sort of an action-y novel. Um, but then she also said that the, the girls like it because there's a a secondary storyline, um, following a, um, like a healer woman character, the aunt of one of the main characters. Um, and we'll get into that later. But so she said it really, it, it's appealing across the board. It's edgy, you know, in that there's lots of violence, there's some sex, there's drugs. Um, a little cannibalism. So there's some cannibalism. So she, you know, she. Yep. she That's just what, just what this girl is into. Just with Julia. That's what would have gotten at first me. Julia was all into Not horses, the, and then she was all into people eating people. <laughs> I, this is just a side note, like half the media I consume and make Greg watch or read, like, ends up ending in surprise cannibalism, and he's very angry at me about it. Is cannibalism always a surprise? Oh, yeah. I'm like, let's watch Snowpiercer. Whoops. Oh, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's read In the Heart of the Sea. Whoops. Like, this is all, there's so much cannibalism that comes let's my Let's watch Gilmore Girls. <laughs> all right. Uh. <laughs> All right, keep going. Sorry, I totally um, yeah, no, the, I mean, and basically, she just sort of introduced me to this this book that I'd, I'd never heard of, and so I um, got it and I started reading it, and um, I, I recommended it to you guys as a book we should maybe talk about, um, even before I heard about these recent controversies, and then I realized, like, oh, this is this is a you know not only a good book to discuss, but then we could also use it as a way to sort of discuss the the larger issues around. Um, I guess ethnicity and writing and this this question of, you know, 
does somebody have the right to uh, fictionalize uh, or to write fiction about characters of another culture that they may or may not be a member of? Um, and I thought that, you know, not only should, you know, is, is it fascinating, this whole Joseph Boyd and this question of his, his ethnicity, you know, but moving beyond that, uh, I guess, like right now in Canada, there's this question of, is it, is it a colonial takeover when white people write about other cultures? And I think that's a, a really fascinating and difficult question. Mm-hmm. And I thought we should just address it a little bit. And um, this seemed like a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so, but, but I, you know, and I, I actually, I, I started, I wrote, I wrote to this woman, Kelsey, about, you know, this controversy too. And she said, yeah, the, you know, this is just happening, by the way. I guess it was in December that the, um, a, a newspaper published an article tracing Joseph Boyden's roots or questioning Joseph Boyden's claims to his ancestry. And, um, so it's, it's still kind of fresh and he's, he, he hid from the public eye for a few months and then he did one big public interview and, and released one statement. Um, and, and so, uh, and then simultaneously there's, this other issue has come up where a white guy wrote this article in, in a Canadian newspaper saying that white people should be allowed to write, um, and as a joke, should be able to write about native cultures as much as they want. And as a joke, he said, there should be an appropriate, a cultural appropriations prize oh, yeah. for the white people who, and the, his argument was that, um, white people are running out of good subjects, you know, that, that just writing about white people life is not interesting enough anymore. So we should feel the right to just write about. Yeah. So it was an obnoxious Why thing. Are and people he, and, so stupid? Well, he ended up getting fired from his job and I, you know, and, and I don't know that much about him, but apparently he's a big conservative, you know, guy that people, yeah. so anyway, I just found this all a very fascinating issue and it's kind of a big deal in Canadian letters right now. Um, and we don't hear about it much, but I, like I said, I thought it was a good launching point. Um, uh, because I think, you know, I think it's, it's just an interesting debate, but let's, let's talk about the book first and for, yeah. first and foremost. Um, so three day road, uh, it's, it was his first book as far as I know. And, um, uh, it, it begins with a character coming home, this character of Xavier. Do you guys think it's Xavier or Xavier? Let's go with Xavier. Xavier. I, yes. I say it as though it were the Seattle Supersonic Xavier McDonald or McDaniel or the X Men. Okay, let's okay. go with that. So, okay, we'll go with Xavier. So Xavier, um, the opening of the novel is is Xavier being picked up at a train station by his aunt Niska, or maybe it's Niska. Niska, which which way do we want to go? I'm gonna go Niska. Me too. Niska. Okay. All right. So Niska uh, picks up, um, uh, meets him at a train station, and he has lost a, a leg or uh, uh, from the knee below uh, in World War One, and she is meeting him, and she thought he was dead, and then the rest of the story is mostly told in flashbacks as we find out how this uh, how this came to be, how the, how he ended up fighting in uh, World War One, fighting in Europe for Canada, even though he is um, of Cree descent and has been raised by his aunt in the bush, completely living off of the the wilderness. Um, the story set in 1919, obviously. Um, and yeah, the, the, they take this journey home to their, um, their, their, I guess, t- wherever they live in the wilderness, the bush. Um, so it's, a, a, they're paddling down the river and then the story is flashbacks to 
Xavier and Elijah, his friend, um, and how the two of them signed up for, or how they grew up together as boy, as boys in the wilderness, learning to hunt. And, uh, then they go off to fight in the war. And most of the book is just the sort of violence and awfulness of the war. Uh, what do you guys think? It should also be noted, it should be noted that Xavier, upon his arrival home and during the, the paddle trip to his ancestral home is actually, um, coming off of a morphine addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's, he is, um, chasing the dragon. He, nope. he, whatever happens when you're no longer an addict and you have to stop being an addict, right. he's going through all that. The present tense story is very hallucinogenic. So yeah. sort of like it's constantly like sort of in and out of reality and in and out of consciousness as the, as, as Niska and Xavier go head down the river. And, um, and then we also get her story through flashbacks of her growing up. Um, there's some cannibalism in her mm. uh, childhood and, um, the Wendigo, the Wendigo. Yeah. Or Wendigo. Wendigo. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole spiritual component to that, so, that storyline, too. Uh, and a surprising return of the trickster myth. Yes. Two books in a row. Right. So uh, I'll I'll go first. And I want to first give a disclaimer, which I know we usually don't. But I know the nomenclature is really important to people. So I looked it up. And I think in Canada, the right thing to say is first peoples and first nations. So that's what yeah. I'm going to say. But if uh, if we're totally wrong, I want to know because I like to try to yeah. keep keep up with it, especially because I know Canada and America have different uh, different points of view on that. But anyway, and Cree is specifically the the tribe or the population that is referred to the most. Um, so anyway, I thought I mean, to me, this is primarily a world a World War One novel. And Let's just talk about that element of it for a second. So I thought as a World War One novel, this was like really successful because I'm so tired of uh, soldier cliches in like <laughs> what kind of innocent American soldiers, blah, 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 uh, are over right. there and how like naive and basically blank they are before they get to the war. So in terms of like enriching the characters with a, like a Full and total history and family history and backstory before they get there and friendship. I thought this was really compelling on that level and something that I hadn't read much before. I've read a couple of World War One novels. I read All Quiet on the Western Front. We all read Bright's Passage. Uh, Which was dog shit. Like, okay. All right. Several years ago. So, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I just thought. It doesn't get any better in comparison to this book. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, oh, I mean, I, I really am. I've been, I've probably mentioned this before, but in the last few years, I've tried, I've been trying to learn a lot more about World War One because it is such a brutal, fascinating war, um, as old warfare and new warfare mixed together and just the mm -hmm. most like grotesque ways ever. And, uh, you know, I listened to all of Dan Carlin's hardcore histories on this. He did like probably 20 hours worth. Which of I highly recommend. I incredible. To that too. Yeah. That's like, yeah. 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 That's, I, I would recommend that even before reading this book. <laughs> like, I think that is probably the best, the most, like, uh, the only the, that was listening to Dan Carlin's hardcore history was how World War One became real in my mind. You know, it yeah. finally, like it would no longer was this abstract, like oh that other war that we don't really talk about that much. It became something so mm -hmm. uh, visceral because he's he's so good at describing. Anyway, go on. Yeah, sorry, and this uh, no, this is it's good. I'm almost done. Uh, this novel really brings certain things into total reality, like crater hopping and yeah, the, the yeah, idea that. Was that it's pretty unlikely for 
a grenade to strike the same spot twice. So the safest place to be is in a crater that was just created. And all of those kind of things are so fascinating and real. Um, One thing I don't think you mentioned in your description, Ryder, was there's, uh, I mean, this is also about snipers and sniping, um, which is a point of view that we don't hear a lot about in from that time period, or at least I haven't. So on all that like war geek level, I can see why people really like this novel. Um, Oh, it's so detailed. It's so well-researched. Like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, to be honest, it's a little too detailed for me. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a I lot. Got, I got a lot like, okay, we're going to another town with another front to go through another trench warfare sequence. Like, yeah. it, 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 uh, it becomes a little redundant to me, but I appreciate the level of, um, of care that he's taken to explain the guns and the different bullet types and the different uh, everything. I mean, it's just the, like he is. So, I mean, you 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 know what kind of belts they're wearing, what kind of clothes. Like everything is just so well detailed and researched. Like I I, I have a lot of respect for Boyden's commitment to understanding. I mean, it almost reads like somebody who experienced the war firsthand. Mm-hmm. You know, which is obviously impossible on so many levels. But um, it it was I thought it was really good in that, in that regard. Definitely. And you you do get to see the the total evolution of warfare in terms of what they're using. Like when they get there to start with, it's just guns and knives. And by the time the book ends, um, 350 pages later, there's people shooting fire and talk of mustard gas. Oh, and then they've uh, also made and, and war clubs. They've made because, war clubs and they've got tanks. Which is the most disturbing thing in the world. Um, so, you know, you, you see over the course of the three years that we follow these folks, um, how the how the countries have adapted to the kind of war they're fighting, and therefore also the way warfare has adapted along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that was that was really cool. And the I airplane disagree- factor too. There's a whole yeah. sequence about the airplane. That, yeah, I have to disagree with you though, Julia, in that this book plays with all of the exact same tropes of every single war novel. Sure, there is the um, horrible lieutenant um, mm. breach. Um, who's evil and who everyone wants to die. There is the warm-hearted um, first guy who teaches them the ropes in Thompson. There's the the superior that they respect and like, even though he's a little huff, tough in them, and that's McCann. You know, there's, there's all these very simple lines. And then the people who are in the troop with them, so fat um, and green eyes. All these guys slide into every single trope of a mm. war novel ever. But by the same token... So, too, do Elijah, Xavier, and Niska. We have the, um, you know, the, the, the trickster. Uh, we have the, the, the quiet one. We, mm-hmm. We've got the, um, you know, the, the, the magician. All of these easy tropes of, I think, you know, Native American literature come into this as well. Yep. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say I didn't enjoy the book. I did enjoy the book, but... These are things we've seen a thousand times over. Right. And yeah, you're right. I think the <laughs> the only wild invention that exists in this book is that they took two First Nation people and put them in a war, mm-hmm. and and they were the main characters. Now I have to also say, more importantly, I had no idea Canada fought in the First World War. I'm just going <laughs> to say that. Good of you to admit. Good of you to admit. And you know, I had Todd, you're always no like saying something super intelligent, and then your sense <laughs> just, of history and geography right just pulls your own rug out from under you. No concept. At least he admits it, though. I think it's yeah. it's nice. 
Um, I'll be honest and say, like, I didn't realize that that there were that many native fighters, you know? Like, no, Apparently, no this is a really sort of, at the end, um, you know, during the acknowledgments, he talks about how this was, uh, you know, fine, like, part of the project of this book was to recognize uh, these um, First Nation fighters who, mm-hmm. who who did do this, which I, I you know, I, you hear about World War II a little bit right. more. I knew a lot about, in, like, the... The code right. talkers in and all the that U.S. Stuff. context, right? Right. But to to see World War One, it was fascinating. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that was that, good... that was awesome. And you know, I I really don't know a ton about World War One. I. I mean, I've read right. I've read fiction about it. Um, I haven't read a ton of nonfiction. Of course, I've seen some of the movies, but I think the movies that I saw were like the ones that were made in the fifties. Um, and so this was a real education in terms of that up close face-to-face fighting that they were doing in the trenches and right. you know the sights the sounds the smells all that stuff was really extraordinarily visceral and you could see todd if you hadn't read as many war novels if you had, if you were a 13 year old boy mm-hmm. for instance or maybe a little bit older a 15 year old in high school reading this book how um, how much it would blow your mind I mean, oh yeah I, if this was the first war novel you encountered that's it's a it's a good first war novel but i agree it, it is riddled with with cliches and yeah and predictable sort of archetypes and stock storylines. I, yeah, mean, I mean, even even the, the sort of brother, the main storyline of this brotherhood and war, and right. um, you know, take even you know where it ends up, where like there's a little bit of identity confusion, and <laughs> yeah. it's it, it's it's all been done before. And, yeah, um, and like you the said, love like, interest is a whore. I mean, all, right. like there's just a lot <laughs> of it's just a lot of sort of by the book stuff. Now, but that being said. I, it's it's like a really good yarn. It's a good story. It's a, a powerfully sure. written book. And I zipped right through it, but I was also made aware that this is the sort of, um, this is the kind of literary fiction that I think appeals to people who don't read a lot of literary fiction. Oh, well put. And oh, I don't I totally think so. Uh, and it, it, you know, there's some easy metaphor. There's some easy simile. There's a sort of poetic language. In, in, in some ways, it also reminded me of um, The English Patient, um, which I think is a, a better mm-hmm. book. But Michael Ondaatje is also, uh, isn't he Canadian as well, now that I think about it? Or if he lives English. in Canada? He's English, Don't know. I think. Is he English? Um, but I think there's a, an awful lot to appreciate in the book. I think that there's also big problems. I think the chapters from the ant's point of view um, slog the book down yeah. by a hundred pages. This is a novel that could have been told in two hundred and fifty pages. The ant story, while interesting, um, is not as interesting to me, at least, as the story of these two First Nation snipers in World War One. I was so I. much more into her story. I was so much more into her story. That's so funny. But it does, you know, you know, I, you know, what, I, I think what you're pointing out, even though I liked it and you didn't, I think it does feel incongruous. It does not feel like the same book. No, those two no. stories don't really blend all that well together. No, that's um, the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, and, and I could, you could read the entire book without the um, the device of having Elijah, or I'm sorry, Xavier in the canoe paddling upstream or whatever, and it would be the same book for the most right. part. Except right. there's there's a twist, um, mm-hmm. a very important twist, where the the aunt has sent Xavier a letter that has been um, poorly transcribed, and it essentially gives Xavier the power to uh, do something horrible. Yeah. 
And that part, I was like, oh, shit, mm-hmm. that's awesome. The, it's, the, it's literally the power of a comma. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, and actually, you know, that, that's thematically very interesting. I didn't even think about this until you said that. But, like, the transmission of, uh, you know, oral traditions into written literature, mm-hmm. like, you could see that, the, you know, for people who are illiterate, like Niska, for her culture to be misinterpreted once it becomes transcribed, um, is interesting. Yeah. Uh, it speaks. Okay. So, yeah. So I agree with that. And I think here's where, okay. So it's like two cliches layered on top of each other that we haven't really seen before is Fresh. what makes it, right. these questions start to arise. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like clicheness, I think Todd, you're so much more steeped in like war literature than I am. So you've very intelligently picked out all those things. But, you know, for me, I I read a lot of Native American literature in high school. And this is just like, okay, all right, we got the old lady (laughs) paddling the canoe. I felt the same way. It was, Um, I mean, to put it, to put it, um, yeah. In a positive, I guess the positive way to put it is that it's it's very romantic. Mm-hmm. This feels like a like it's romantic about yeah. war and it's romantic about Native Americans too. Do right. you know what I mean? Or First Nations. It yeah. has this sort of like sure. You know, I mean, she is the medicine woman healer, which feels very uh, cliche. You yeah. know, it feels like a and and it that's feels, not to say it's not well written, but I and not even and, cliche. It's stereotype. And, uh, and that's right. the difference. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing, and this is going to, you know, lead in obviously into our inner discussion. Yeah, which we're is, going. We're going. When I, re- when I started this reading this book, over a hell, yeah. Uh, almost immediately, I would say about 20, 25 pages in, I I questioned whether he was actually a First Nations writer because it felt so romantic to me. I was like, this feels like a white guy writing about about Indians. Like Mm -hmm. that was just my first thought. I was like, this feels like it's because you know, the stuff you like, if you compare this to something like, um, like the easiest comparison for me was, uh, Leslie Marmon Silco's ceremony, which is one of my favorite books of all time and is about a soldier returning from world war two, several soldiers, but the main character is, uh, uh, someone suffering from PTSD and returning to the reservation and trying to contend with, you know, this sort of, this, problem of having fought for a nation that now doesn't give a shit about him because he's an Indian. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was something about this book that that uh, just, it felt too easy to me. It felt very stereotypical. And like I said, in a positive spin, it felt romantic. It felt right. like it was romanticizing the, the, the Aboriginal aspects. It was romanticizing the culture, romanticizing the spirituality. And you know, my experience with with native literature is that it's very anti-romantic, that that's kind of, you know, the, the, the romanticism mostly comes from a, a, a European perspective, a colonial perspective, and, you know, that most native writers are more interested in de-romanticizing, that mm-hmm. the literature is about taking the tropes of the you know, Indian in a headdress, uh, smoking a peace pipe, or the ceremonial sweat lodge ceremonies, and sort of de-romanticizing them and making them gritty, making them human, making them real. And and that oftentimes 
that still can be a celebration, but it's a human celebration. And it comes from a place of intimate sort of understanding that does not need to. So I, I what I kept thinking was, okay, this is either, either someone who actually grew up with the, some of these traditions being told to them um, and they want to celebrate them in this really romantic light and sort of nostal- make this nostalgic and, or this is somebody who didn't really experience these things and is kind of uh, filtering them through yeah, but, I mean, a very European perspective. But that's true of, you know, any literature. Like, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think if you write fiction, you are attempting to create a world. Particularly historical not, fiction. Yeah, particularly historical fiction. Irrespective yeah. of whether or not you've lived in it or have any, have any experience in it other than researching it yourself. So, I mean, that's that becomes that question of, of cultural appropriation and all that sort right. of stuff that we can talk about. But the role of the fiction writer, um, at least in my view, is not to convey the way people sound. It's to convey the way people think. And I think, to convey their logic, essentially. And I think hmm. where I, where this book at times to me felt stereotypical or romantic, uh, to use your terminology, writer, is when he instead attempted to um, show how these people sound, you know, to, right. to, to paint the world in, you know, what we might view as kind of a stereotypical uh, native view, you know, with right. always looking for the, for an eagle screaming, you know, there's, that happens right. very early in the book. And like, that was the point at which I was like, oh, come on. Um, or describing a train on the first page. There's this yeah. description of a train as an animal snorting, and and I was like, really? I don't. I yeah. think it would be more alien than that. I don't think you would immediately make this compare. But it it just seemed like an easy, like you're saying, you said earlier, there were some easy similes. Yeah, that just and, were not all the way thought out. And so, but, I mean, I'm not always of the opinion necessarily that you can. I mean, I'm never of the opinion that you can only write about yourself or things you know, or else the canon of the world's literature would all be about white people. Um, but I always think about this thing that Sherman Alexie said. So Sherman Alexie um, reviewed Ian Fraser's book on the res. This was um, this was eight years ago in the Los Angeles Times, and on the res was a nonfiction book talking about um, a, a a female basketball player on a, a reservation, and um, Alexie, you know, really took Fraser to task. Um, about the book and about him writing the book. Um, and I just want to read this last paragraph at the end of this review. And it, it sort of touches on, I think, some of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, he says, Frazier is a talented, sensitive, and humorous writer. And he does portray the reservation as a place filled with just as much magic as loss, just as much joy as pain, just as much love as hopelessness. But what does the talent accomplish within the pages of his book? Frazier does a very tricky thing. He almost convinces us that he's writing about uh, the Oglala Sioux. I think I probably butchered the name of that. About their res. When in reality, he's mostly talking about himself, about his feelings, about his real and imagined pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's the, the difficult thing. Like, when you're, when you're attempting to filter your view, your view of the world, through the eyes and body of someone that does not belong to you... Uh, I think that's where that it sort of gets muddy, mm-hmm. you know, and yep. and where these questions of stereotype or cliche or appropriation start to show up in in a finer light. Now, if 
if Boyden hadn't said um, at the time that he was uh, part uh, Native, um, and I don't remember how much he said he was, but that he had he had some Indian background in him, um, would it matter, or would it just be a novel? But that he's claiming to have this heritage that he doesn't, I think, puts these sorts of issues in pretty, you know, pretty broad relief. Like, now you're looking for it. Now you're asking, right. why did you make this choice? Why did you make that choice? You know, what are you mm-hmm. trying to say? And does that belong in the realm of fiction? You know, can't we just make stuff up? Isn't that what we've always done, is make stuff up? Right. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many, oh, I have so many thoughts about this, and they're complicated because if he, this is the... The first people's aspect of this is so much of what the book is about. This isn't, you know, just part of the narrative or part of the characters. It is like the canvas on which he's painting. Um, And I feel like that that makes it even more complicated for me. But, you know, like it gets into all these questions. I was I was reading up a little bit on this. um, But, you know, like how much recognition and space has he taken up that other Native writers could have you know, could have taken, you know, awards and just, you know, prominence and all this stuff. And that's where it gets like really hairy is when he makes it a part of his identity. Mm -hmm. But also as a nonfiction, and of course this is saying like something totally different, which is write another book, which is always unfair to say when you're reviewing a book. However, there's so much fascinating backstory to these characters. Mm -hmm. This is based on a real sniper that is a real person that if you had tackled this from a nonfiction point of view, there would be absolutely no problem with it. It would be like, hey, here's this amazing person. He's so fascinating. Here's his story, you know? And, like, why you wouldn't say to yourself, like, okay, this is probably a more respectful way. This is dealing with a a human being that there's tons of information out there about, you know, like, (laughs) why you wouldn't grab for that just boggles my mind. Um, Because it's just that's, that's the way to to treat these subjects more humanely is to deal with actual humans than invent some people that are like kind of historic but kind of a mix of your own like ideas about your identity. Um, now, of course, like a diff- that's a different writer, that's a different choice. But yeah, like it's David Graham has a me. book out now. Um, you know that nonfiction book about the uh, the Native Americans who owned a bunch of oil and were murdered systematically in a small town. Do you guys know about this? Sure. Oh, yeah. No. And and David Graham, you know, he's he's I think he won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, nonfiction, but he's writing about these people. And he's writing about nonfiction, and you know, he's just a, a fantastic writer. But I mean, that's it, it's so hard because you know, as a as a writer, which all of us are, like we want to have the freedom to have characters and situations from any world, and we can write about them. So here we have this truly amazing story that he's written about, you know, these these two young men, these boys, really, plucked out of the wilderness, one of them. Uh, the other one has been raised as an orphan in um, Christian schools, thrown into a foreign land and essentially using their skills that they had as young boys hunting to become the most vicious snipers in World War One. I. I mean, that's an amazing story. No, it's a great story. It's a great yeah. story. And the book is, is fun and interesting and cool to read. And it makes it more interesting that they are Native because 
it's not that story that we're used to. And it's not the, you know, the, the kid from Oklahoma who's been shooting cows. I don't know if you shoot cows. You right. probably don't. Um, who then goes over there and uses great skills <laughs> as an Okie to, you know, slaughter the crowds. Right. Um, so there's, well, see, I, there's a, I, a remarkable I, I, thing about it. That's the, that's the really cool, amazing thing about it. Right. Well, I wonder how much of this was, I mean, well, let's just, so what happened in this article that was published about Boyden was um, this journalist dug into his, his family's history and was unable to find any, um, any real native roots. But the most damning part of it is that the one relative that, that he could find was um, Boyden's uncle, who actually was a white man who pretended to be an Indian. Oh, God, tourists, no. Who called himself, like, Injun Earl. No. And lived in a teepee no. and sold, right. And oh. who, at the time, told, uh, like, well, there was a profile written about him in the 60s or whatever, and he admitted that he was a white guy from Massachusetts and that he had no Indian blood oh, in him. God. And so, therefore, this was a performance thing that he was doing. And so I think what happened, I mean... I, I, I don't know how much Boyden actually, you know, who, I mean, I honestly don't know if I care or know that much of, like, about his actual genetic DNA, but, but what he's saying now is that this uncle it was actually, did have Native American blood, uh, as in from the U.S., and he moved to Canada, and then that he had told everybody he was white um, when they asked him directly because he was insecure about, I, but, but then meanwhile he was peddling so it's a very complicated thing, and, and I wonder how much of that is just sort of family story confusion. Like, right. I wonder if Boyden actually did grow up being told you have, you know, these these roots and and this genetic history that he actually doesn't have. But either way, he he now says that he grew up a white kid with native roots. That's sort of his his sentence that he's 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 claiming now. So essentially, and, that he grew up believing he had native roots. Right, right, which, you know, is, is a fascinating thing that I think a lot of people do. Like, for, you know, like if you go on some of these heritage websites, mm -hmm. for instance, you know, where you can send in your DNA. Like, if you go to the frequently asked questions, one of the first ones is like, will I be able to find out if I have Native American in me? Because for whatever reason, that seems to be a desirable trait, like, um, in the sense of like, I, I, I think it's, it's this like sort of white guilt factor yeah, like if you grow up I white totally where it's agree. like oh if i if i have a little bit of you know if i'm part cherokee on one side that sort of lessens my colonial guilt or i don't know i've never quite understood well, it because i've never felt it myself but um it's it's you know it's this problem of plain indian and it has a really horrible history of um you know it, it, it it's it's just it goes hand in hand with genocide and the the real history that 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 has gone on. I mean, the real violence well, have, that has gone have either on of you, historically. I, have either of you ever watched that show with Henry Louis Gates where he, where he tracks people's history through time? No. 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 In, invariably, it'll be some actor or politician or whomever's on the show, and they'll always say, well, I was always told I had, you know, Blackfoot Indian in me. And they'll, right. they'll sure. bring up the DNA and be like, you are 87% uh, European white, and thirteen percent Russian, <laughs> like right. oh, yeah. oh right. <laughs> no, so, I, I think I, that's the, and I think that's the problem here is that Boyden absorbed something that might not have been very true, and then he opened up his fictional mind into you know wherever he was interested to go, and 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 it, it took him here. And then I'm curious if it was not a publishing choice. I'm curious if the publisher did not take this book and say, you know, this is a good book. It's 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 good. It's going to be a great you know story, but. 
it's also that much better if it's written by a native writer. Yes, uh, and the James him, Frey problem. Right, and they yeah. were like, hey, do you have any native roots? And he was like, yeah, because if you read the, 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 the author about the author in the beginning of Three Day Road, it says... Uh, Joseph Boyden is a Canadian of Irish, Scottish, and Metis roots. So, mm. he, he, you know, he puts that he's Irish-Scottish in there, too, um, and then adds this Metis, which he's now retracted because he found out that Metis is an actual uh, tribal designation that he does not claim Boy, anymore. <laughs> right, it's, it's very complicated. So now he's, he's, he's claiming Cree and um, Ojibwa and... Um, you know, so so it's just a, it's just a fascinating thing. I almost feel like he unwittingly sort of you know fell into this, but but it, it takes me. So it also makes me think about the way that publishers choose to put authors' photographs often when they are non-white, and I've always been bothered by this, and I find it fascinating um, that a part of the publicity or part of the dust jacket of a book if the author is non-white, will often include a photograph of them and make their ethnicity sort of part of the presentation of the book itself. Or, you know, and it, it, it has this ugly tradition of hearkening back to like slave narratives, which would have to open with a sort of certification that this was written by an actual black person. Um, you know, and I, I think the publishing industry should hold a little bit more responsibility than they do. Like when, when we attack these authors like Boyden, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's worth pinning him down and sort of making him confront this because he obviously put it out there. But I also think we should hold publishers accountable and, and ourselves to a certain extent when we pick up these books, what are we expecting and, and why do we hold authenticity Writer, in your, the narrative? Your idea of the role publishers play in that part of anything is wrong. What do you mean? <laughs> yes. Really? You don't think they would ever... Like want to help package the book with a sort of presentation but, of me, well, the Julia's, identity. Julia's trying to get appointed, but I'll explain how it works in just a second. No, then mine <laughs> is going to go in a slightly different direction. Go ahead, you go. So, okay, what happens when you get your bio and your photo on your book is you're in contact with like the person nineteenth down beneath the editor who says, "Can you send me a photo?" And your bio. And you send them a photo, and you send them a bio, and then the book is printed with your photo and the bio you wrote on the book. Now, maybe that's just my experience as... As a yeah, white but guy. I think you're also well. That's part of what I'm talking about. Look, if you like, we should we should actually look this up because if you look at books, if you look at the actual books, if it's a if it's a a, a a white writer, there's either often not a photo at all or a photo on the inside of the book. If it is a a woman and and if it's a woman of any sort of non-white identity, they tend to put their photographs on the back of the book. It, I, I'm not. I'm not making so, this up. I used to have discussions about this in in college all the time because we would be reading contemporary literature, and it was like, oh, was it written by an ethnic woman? Well, there she is, pretty and smiling on the back, always. Mm. Whereas if it was written by a white dude, no need to put the photo. And I think that there's something to that. I think that it's part of selling the identity. Uh, as if, like, look, this person is not the white male that you expect, and that's part of... I'm, I'm going to have to do some research on this, because, it, I mean, yeah. it's a level of conspiracy that I'm not comfortable saying is true, <laughs> because of yeah. how, how... I'm not saying it's conspiracy. No, but I'm saying... I'm, I'm not... I'm not, bl- I'm saying I'm not saying it's of necessarily intent. conspiracy. I'm just saying, like, like, the level of 
interaction with on that level of things is is so minimal and like you know i i have no idea if my picture is going to be on the back of my book or in the sleeve of the book basically until i get the book but usually it's on the sleeve just because that's how most dust covers work is the pictures on the sleeve unless you are a huge best-selling author in which case the entire back page of the book is your face so like if you're looking at Someone who is constantly in the top 20 of the New York Times bestseller list, the back of the book is always their face, always, um, particularly for genre fiction. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a study on this. I'm going to look at the 3,000 books I have in my house. But I, I don't know. It, 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 it makes me think like that there's a concerted uh, effort. Maybe there's a concerted effort. But it just seems like a level of um, detail that... that Publishers are just not known for. Okay, Todd, so Todd, I'm Todd, jumping Todd, in. I'm have you ever? In. Hold stop, on, hold stop. on, come on. Let me ask Todd a question. Has your ethnicity ever been described in your bio? Uh, it the Judaism was described yes. in Gangsterland. It was. Yeah. Because yeah, like, why? Because if you write a book about a rabbi and people don't think you're a Jew, and Goldberg gives up Jew. But isn't that? <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Now, it, it now, so if like you know, you don't know who Colson Whitehead is, right? Like, mm-hmm. you you have to you have to know when somebody writes a book like Underground Railroad that they might actually be black, right? Because that would affect your reading of it, right? And, like okay. Joseph Boyden had to had to put that he's Irish, Scottish, and Metis. Yeah, he had this, the, like, that he was had a choice to. he made. He had he to. Had. Right, no, or stop. But I have to save you from yourself. <laughs> stop. What you are talking about is not just the publishing publishing industry. This is how identity works. Default is white man. Right. Everywhere, in every industry. What Todd is saying that is so salient is it's not the publisher making that call, it's the author. Right. This is we're seeing it from this discussion as like a colonial thing, but this is also a representation mm-hmm. thing. Like if I wrote a book that was somehow let let's say I wrote like a children's book about animals, like not gendered at all. Like it would be important to me, and it was a bestseller. It would be important to me to like put out there like a woman wrote this, like J.K. Rowling. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. she initially used her initials, I think, to degender it a little bit, but then eventually it's like, no, I was a single mom when I wrote this book. Like if you are not a white man, that is something that can be very important to you. I don't want to speak for everybody, but like, it's not, it's so much more delicate. So like, yes, of course, Joseph Boyden is claiming that space to like claim legitimacy. Now put him aside, put him aside. Mm -hmm. Think of like a a writer like Sherman Alexie who could pass as white, but like being Native Americans, very, uh, very, very important to him. Like, of course he's going to claim that space like all the time, not just for himself, but other people in his identity Mm -hmm. group. Like this is, this is what identity politics is in, and it has like a very, sharp edge as we're seeing when people are <laughs> appropriating things or have some like massive fuck up like Joseph Boyden actually <laughs> did. But it can also be extremely important and positive. So, you know, like this is just the the world that that we're living in at this moment is people are like figuring out how to identify, uh, which again is like a very positive, very, very negative word. Um, and they're figuring out how to like take take that in a way that is both true to themselves and not like stepping on everybody else. So right. I think you're right, but you're also seeing this in a much 
like a really narrow scope. You know, like if I was an editor who was black and I had Toni Morrison, I would be like, hell yeah, I'm putting her picture on everything. Like this is cool right. as shit. Right. You know, <laughs> so it's it's only gets really messy when somebody. Well, no, it's always really messy, but it only feels just like absolutely wrong when we hit when we hit this. And this brings me to my other point that I was going to get into before we got into your very interesting conspiracy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not. If, uh, hold on, hold on. I'm not claiming that necessarily. What I'm saying is that the responsibility. Like, I, here's what here's my major point, which is when you look at something like the, this, the Boyden's, you know, decision to put hit the ethnicity front and center mm-hmm. of the book, like the first page of the book that is, weird. is about yeah. it, right? Okay. Now you could say that that's just his decision, right? Like you guys are saying and fine. Okay. But I think it's also part of a publishing choice. Like there's always like, you know, this, I think there's always a discussion about when you went like Todd, like you were saying, like if the text itself addresses ethnicity in some capacity or an identity that is, um, like you're saying, non-white, the publishers are also choosing to make that part of the selling of the book. And the third component that we haven't even gone to that I wanted to talk about that is important to me is that we as readers take responsibility for the fact that we care about the ethnicity of the author. Right. And that, that that matters to us as readers. So I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. What I'm saying is that the responsibility for, like, it's easy to say, oh, we should just be able to write whatever stories we want and the imagination should be free. But but we also are all we all do seek some sort of authenticity about authors that write about ethnicity or an experience that is non-white. We actually almost we we almost require that of our books, but, and that there's but a, is, that's, I mean, that's why the author the, feels the pressure in the first place. It's part of the stupid thing. Like for fiction, we want to find out from the author how much of this is true. And, right. then, and for exactly. nonfiction, this we want a- to know how much did you make up. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it's it's just an absurd scale. This is, and it's it's where, and I remember discussing this in my undergrad English degree. It's it's also just like where literary reading is at this moment. Like it hasn't always been that way. And the I I think in the sixties and seventies there was this huge movement of like no, it's only about the text. Like, don't even worry about the author. And this is, it's all cultural, you know, like this is political. The personal is political. History is political. Literature is political. You know, like we're Mm -hmm. in a moment where identity is the top of our conversation all the time. So like, of course we care about this. Like you, you can't separate it at all. So here's the other thing I wanted to say, which I think is important. You know, I was thinking about other um, interesting Native American things I've been absorbing lately, all nonfiction and a lot in uh, podcast context. Um, and there's this amazing podcast that's a spinoff of Radiolab called More Perfect, and I hope people have listened to it because it's, it's just incredible. Um, and there's an episode that is one of the best episodes of any radio piece I've ever heard called Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl, and it's a Supreme mm-hmm. Court case about um, – a Native American girl who was adopted, and then when she was like two or three, her real father tried to get her back. Oh. Um, and he had Native American, uh, he was of Native American descent. Um, a, a true, like he wasn't faking anything. Don't even put in your mind that that's a part of the story. <laughs> it's, absol- it's absolutely fascinating um, because it's about this battle that has. Um, Historical roots that are referred to in this book and that to give Joseph Boyden some sliver of hope or credit, you know, like we have to bring up, which is that 
you know, like this is not in a vacuum. Like our romanticizing of American Indians and First Peoples is new. There was a humongous campaign to whitewash, you know, this entire culture, to tear these children away from their families, to destroy these lineages and these connections. So this this podcast episode is all about that. And then at the end, it is revealed that and by the end of it, you're like, yep, this guy totally deserves his daughter back. You know, like this is so important, like we have to preserve this. And then it's revealed right at the end that he's only two percent Native mm. American. And that's when you have to ask mm. yourself, like, what is our like, are we putting this guy on trial for not being native enough, wow. not being brown enough? You know? And I mean both the guy in this podcast, and I also mean Joseph Boyd. Now yeah. I want to be like super clear that he is being a dumbass by being so defensive. But it is absolutely true, like, his stories of, like, people kind of claiming the heritage and then pushing it away and then passing and then not passing is that is the history of what Americans and Canadians have done to their Native people. So, yeah. like, we don't know. We just don't know. And we have to live with that not knowing. And we, ha we cannot put people on trial for their ethnicity unless they are, like, complete liars, which Joseph Boyden may turn out to be. But... It's so complicated. We can't say like, well, you're not black enough. You're right. not native enough. Right. We just can't do that, especially from our position. So right. everyone should go listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, and there's also, uh, there's also just, this is a side recommendation, but it's just as good. Uh, Radio Lab, the original podcast, did an incredible episode on the history of American football and how it was begun as uh, an American Indian sport and then like turned into this like white bro -y thing and it's absolutely fascinating and everyone should go I didn't know that either and then it, it is it went so from white bro amazing to predominantly african-american right right <laughs> yep yeah that's very that's so very yeah cool. so again it goes back to my earlier point like the the history is so the actual history of all of these things and movements is so, yeah. so good it's like why why would you not just dig into that so yeah. for listeners who are feeling like super ambivalent i would say like go find out all the true stuff first and then take your education and then like dive into fiction and read it with a critical mind i totally agree and i think what what a book like this does, though, regardless of all this other stuff that we've been talking about, is I think it really personalizes World War I in a way that I was not familiar with. And so outside of who the author is, outside of the authenticity of the voice of the first people that he's talking about, outside of all that stuff, this is on a granular sentence-to-sentence -sentence detail level, man, it is a gruesome, awful terrible monotonous war that i have really very little understanding of beforehand and so the book is i think really valuable for that it's a good book you know if if you go into barnes and noble <laughs> and you pick up a book and you're going to go on vacation for instance i should tell you guys i am in fact going to alaska and canada on vacation this summer um if you were to take this book on vacation with you um and you didn't Google everything because you're not three right. obsessive uh, <laughs> literary dorks like the three of us. You'd read this book and you'd be like, oh, that was a really good book. I really enjoyed that book. And right. you, can, you can do that. Like, I release you 
to have the freedom of not looking into the lives of the authors who write your books. Well, but some people would say that that's the privilege of being a white man, <laughs> right? Because if you're, well, no, because if you're, yeah. it, I mean, for, for a lot of First Peoples, this is not, like the uh, First Nations people in Canada, they're very upset about this because exactly what what Julia said, he's taking up space and and claiming, like you know, of a, a, a if you if you think of he's, it's a colonial takeover of the imaginative mm-hmm. space. Do you know what I mean? It's like this is this is something this you know these types of characters and these types of stories and these traditional. Um, uh, you know, medicinal practices mm-hmm. and all this stuff. He's, if he didn't grow up with that, if he didn't, you know, um, really uh, live in that and, and, and come, does he have the right to imaginatively take that over? And, you know, they see it as a real violence. And that is, that is on one hand, you know, that that's one point of view. And then on the other hand is this very sort of purist, uh, I, I, idealistic vision of fiction, which I also hold in my mind, which is that we should be allowed to write whatever we want. Well, we should be allowed to write about whatever characters we want, and whoever we want should be our main character, and we should make it up or let, not, let me, and it should be really let, free. And that's a tough thing to, to reconcile, right. because I hold both of those in my mind at the same time as, as reality. Let, let me give you an actual experience that I've, I've had. So... After Gangsterland came out, and so for those of you who haven't read the book, it's about a guy who pretends to be a Jew. It's a hitman who pretends to be a Jew and runs a temple in Las Vegas. So after Gangsterland came out, I went and spoke at a lot of synagogues around the country. And at some point in my conversation, I would always ask the same question, which is, if my last name weren't Goldberg, would I be here? And the answer, every single time, was no. Yeah. Interesting. Every single time. And I said, if you had read this book and it wasn't by a Jew, would you think some of the things that I said in here that were intentionally anti-Semitic were so anti-Semitic that you would take to the internet and complain about the horrible anti-Semite? Absolutely. Absolutely. But my last name is Goldberg. And it says in my bio that I've written for Juicy. (laughs) Um, You know, so I get it. I, I totally get it. Um, but that's, that's, I think, the ghettoization again, of, our, of, of, resp- of people now. Like, we, right. we have not become, and I think the world is clear on this, the world has not become more accepting in trying times. What we typically do is we, we insulate ourselves in trying right. times. We, we become more right. tribal. <laughs> right. We clamp down and say, this is, this is, these are my people. Right. These are not your people. Yeah. Ugh. Well, it's a process, and part of that process is honesty and reckoning with history. And, like, as Americans, we're not done with that at all, and we're, like, in a moment where we're really working on it. So it's a good time to hash it out. But, yeah, I would say if you want to read this book, read it, but also read a book by a different Canadian First Peoples author author i don't have a recommendation off the top of my head but like you go find it you Mm -hmm. seek it out you know um and that is how real understanding and change and representation will be made um get this book from the library and buy the other person (laughs) there you go i like that recommendation (laughs) yeah (laughs) this guy's made enough money the the book was a huge success he's yeah did they make it into a movie yeah Yeah. is this a movie 
I think they've talked about making it into a movie. I'm sure it's now very complicated. <laughs> but like everything else in this this guy's life, it seems like a natural. Just be fraught with controversy. Yeah, it seems like a natural movie, but I mean, the book came out 12 years ago, so I'm surprised that it's not one already. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Literary Disco is edited and produced by Tucker Ives. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Thanks for listening.